0: welcome to Head On History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. This week's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Head over to audiblefreetrialcom slash history. Uh, this week uh, we are going to talk a little bit more about the Mesopotamian world. We started this season, season four, by talking about the Akkadian Empire. Uh, in particular, we are interested in exploring the themes of empire and religion. In this episode, we're going to continue that. And we're going to try to develop that theme a little bit further by looking specifically at the Babylonian Empire. Now, if if the Akkadian Empire gave us the first empire of world history. And we use the term empire here kind of loosely. It is a vague uh, concept at this point. What we mean by by empire is a sort of expansionist, dynamic, uh, political entity that involves administering and governing multiple ethnicities, languages, cultures, cities, etc. The earliest civilizations in Mesopotamia were city-states. And it was really Akkadian that brought these city-states together into some kind of connected, governed body, and it was governed by Sargon of Akkad. But it's really the Babylonians who truly fuse religion and empire into the kind of theme that we are exploring in this season of Head-On History. So, Akkadian Empire sets the stage, but it's the Babylonians that take over. Now, the Akkadian Empire falls about 180 years after its founding, likely due to drought. Now, we're not exactly sure about this. Like most things in the ancient world, the evidence here is scarce, but there is some good, compelling evidence um, that tells us that there was some type of drought or, or, or issue with the desert, issue with resources, that eventually led to the destruction or the decline and then collapse of the Akkadian Empire. 180 years is still a huge feat uh, for, for this period of time. Access to resources and the kind of harshness of environment are going to continue to play a major role both in the success and failure of empires, but also in the kind of cosmology of the Sumerians. And that's interesting to remember because these empires are forming between two rivers in a river valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Most of them are very close to the river, Some of them originally, some of these old cities, originally were kind of reed huts, if you will, or or reed settlements right on the river banks. But as these cities kind of grow, they grow around those rivers. Now the Tigris and the Euphrates are very weird rivers. They're kind of hostile. They flood irregularly. They're not quite reliable. On one hand, they are the source of both sustenance. Uh, On the other hand, they're also the source of destruction. If that river floods violently, it wipes out all the agriculture, it can really bring empires to an end, which is why we see flooding as the theme of the Epic of Gilgamesh. But simultaneously, if we have droughts, those rivers retreat and there is no agriculture. So we're going to see how environment really does play a big factor, both in the historical failures and successes of these Mesopotamian uh, dynasties and kingdoms and empires, but as well as how they form the sort of cosmology. In other words, the mythical language in that that merges tries to make sense of the environment that they're living in. So this is this is in many ways um, you know the ancient people's dealing with their climates, these are dealing with their environments and the mythology both helps to explain and articulate their experiences as well as gives them a sort of sense of order an attempt to try to control the chaos that is their world. We see this particularly in in the kind of view of afterlife of the Mesopotamian as We mentioned this before, but it's a place viewed as, as the realm of shades and shadows that are eating dust. In other words, the sort of lack of water, the unreliability of the tigris and the Euphrates, and the droughts that they experienced in life shaped their understanding of the afterlife. That is an afterlife that is not blessed and happy per se, as we would probably think of in regards to, to heaven, nor is it as uh, destructive and, and punitive as as we would think of uh, when we talk about hell. Instead, it is uh, a place of just misery, because life is miserable. So so the Mesopotamians have a very pessimistic view of the world, and that pessimism manifests in, in their cosmology. Now, after the collapse of the Akkadian Empire, we don't have any other major empire until the Babylonians. Now, there is a sort of third dynasty of Ur that happens in the 22nd and the 21st century, but it was quite minor and not really kind of important to the theme that we're looking at. We don't know a lot about the Babylonian dynasty's origins, other than they were actually Amorites rather than Akkadians, and the Amorites were a Semitic people from Syria, and it's likely from Syria that they came into Mesopotamia and and established their empire. The first ruler of this Amorite Babylonian dynasty was Sumu Abum in 1830, and it's unlikely that there was much real kind of territorial expansion under Sumu Abum, but but rather perhaps an early small kingdom being established. And it isn't until the coming of Hammurabi in 1728 BCE that we see a real empire emerge. Now, what happens here is kind of interesting. The Elamites, which are much further south, and we're going to talk about the Elamites in future episodes because the Elamites show up again when we talk about the Persians, right? So the Elamites are kind of a fascinating ancient people who come in and attempt to conquer and establish their own empires, but more often than not, they cause other empires to rise with their actions. So what the Elamites do is they attempt to come in and, and conquer this dynasty of the of Sumu Abum, and they do so by trying to agitate Hammurabi with another local ruler. The, the two rulers, Hammurabi and this other guy, they realize what's going on, and they're like, well, well F this duplicitous Elamite attempt, we're going to join forces and fight the elamites so they join forces attack the elamites and are able to defeat the elamites so the elamite attempt at conquest actually backfires on them and inadvertently as this kind of those of you who have been following along ahead on history for a while know that i'm a big fan of the theme There's a lot of unintended consequences in history. Well, this is another example of the unintended consequence of the Elamites attempting to create their own empire is that they led to the rise of Hammurabi. Hammurabi defeats them. Then he turns on his ally, defeats him, and establishes the first Babylonian empire empire. It's also possible that that Babylon, which becomes the center of this new dynasty, this new city of Babylon, was really originally one of several sites of power until the consolidation happens under Hammurabi. And under Hammurabi, we refer to this as an empire, but it's also accurately viewed as a sort of confederation or a hegemony, meaning that he may not have exerted his direct military power by setting his troops in these very various cities, uh, but instead Conquer them and establish a sort of political supremacy. Babylon is who you turn to as your center. Babylon is supreme above all else, and we're going to see this kind of more flexible form of of, uh, empire emerge under the Athenians as well in the Mediterranean at a much later date. Uh, We'll see the sort of the, the rise of the Delian League and eventually the Athenian hegemony, which really talks about a different kind of multiple ways that empire emerges. And this is very different from later empires, both the Muslim empires and the Roman empires who established dominance through military garrisons. That There is a direct military presence, there are direct military governors who report back to some form of central authority. Under Hammurabi, we don't seem to have that type of empire, but much more of a hegemony. Hammurabi rules through political supremacy, but maybe not so through direct rule there may have been what we see what we see is there are, there are kings that still live under Hammurabi, but they pay homage to uh, Hammurabi. Now, what Hammurabi is most famous for and what everyone probably knows whenever I say Hammurabi, oh, the Hammurabi's code, right? It's like the kind of thing that everyone knows, popular knowledge, right? And Hammurabi's code is exactly why he's famous and also one of the most important ways that we're going to examine the theme of empire and religion in this episode. So the code was written in cuneiform and it's about seven feet tall and it's on a steel. And it portrays uh, this Babylonian king that is Hammurabi, and he's receiving. Kingship and laws from the god Shamash, and Shamash is a solar deity, and we'll talk a little bit more about him in a bit. And it's at the top of the stele that we see this. Now, at the bottom, there are laws—about 282 laws. Now, these laws are referred to uh, in the style of lex talionis—that is, the laws of retribution. What most people don't actually know is that Hammurabi's code is not the first law code ever written. People think that it is. That's actually a mis- misinterpretation or misunderstanding. There are lo- law codes that predate him. Uh, for example, quite famously, the, the law code of ur It's a very old law code. Or uh, the law code of Urukaniga. Those are all law codes that predate by several centuries Hammurabi's. But why Hammurabi's law code is so important is that it does two things. First, it establishes a particular style of, of law that that is then adopted going forward by empire after empire and religion after religion. It's really central to understanding things like the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, even Islamic law and Christian law. All of this really is inspired heavily by the law code of Hammurabi. And that is because the law code is... uh, the, is, a, is a particular style, like I mentioned, lex talionis. In other words, whereas the previous codes, like the Code Urnamur and the Urukaniga talked about things like reimbursement, if something happens, this is how much you reimburse. The law code of Hammurabi details punishment that's where the lex talionis comes from, the law of retribution. If you do this, this is the punishment for it. If you do that, this is the punishment for it. In other words, it establishes a particular style of law, and that is coercive law, law that is rooted in prevention and punishment. That's the two principles of it. These type of laws become the main way in which legal codes are understood in the pre-modern world up until even contemporary times. One can argue that the principle of punishment and prevention is still very much alive in the American penal system, in the British penal system, that yeah, we may have you know more components of rehabilitation, etc., but still, prevention and punishment is a major feature of the law, and it starts with Hammurabi. The other aspect of, of this is that it is a law code that really succinctly and quite beautifully establishes the theme of what I've had on Histories uh, Season 4, and that is the intersection of empire religion. We're going we're gonna to see how that, that is in just a moment, but we should note that the law code of Hammurabi is actually a continuation of what we've already seen in Akkadia. So this is another theme of history that those of you who've listened to Ed on history will recognize that things that emerge are built on what came before them that history, while having ruptures and changes and breaks, also tries to build on what came before. Indeed, this is a sign of successful empires. For example, we find that the style that we that Hammurabi writes this law code or whoever writes this law code of Hammurabi is in the in similar style found in the Akkadian traditions. And one of the first authors, if you will, of world history is, is a female actually, and it's Enehi Duana. Enehi Duana is believed to be the daughter of Sargon of Akkad. Now, we don't know if she's actually the daughter of Sargon of Akkad, but she is a high priestess who fuses religion with the state, and she establishes the kind of stylistic form that then gets adopted by Hammurabi, but also later by the Psalms. Um, and we'll see an example of this in just a minute. And what's interesting about Enehudana is that she is one of the first women in ancient history that we encounter. We know that women existed, but it's often very very difficult to find the daily lives of women, but there's some brilliant work being done by historians and academics to kind of understand to, to try to kind of not necessarily recreate because that's a misunderstanding of what historians do, but at least locate the story and lives of of women. But we know that they existed, and is a prime example that not only did they exist, but they were quite vocal. They they left records and they left evidence, and they were major participants in society. Uh, along with Enehuada, there's a a, a recent uh, attempt to kind of translate Akkadian and Sumerian Proverbs, a uh, very famous uh uh, historian right now, uh, and one that I encountered on Twitter is Dr. Mahdi al-Rashid, who, ta- who talks about some of these proverbs. One is this proverb that says, my mouth makes me equal to a man. My mouth gets me judged as a man. Very brilliant kind of proverb that talks about the questions of power and agency in the ancient world. So, does uh, du'ana's uh, f- stylistic form shows up in Hammurabi's code. He builds Builds on a style that the ordinary person, literate or illiterate, would have recognized. This is the Akkadian style, the style in which the priests and priestesses encounter the divine. For example, there are two quotes here that, that I want to, to highlight. First, may the god Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth who provides just ways for all living creatures. Now, this kind of language is very similar to what we find in the Psalms. This kind of appeal to God as a judge, of a creator of heaven and earth, and who provides for all people an appeal this appeal is found in the psalms it's found in egyptian writing we're not sure if Hammurabi's uh, work inspires the egyptian but we know that it inspires the bible or at least have very strong evidence of it inspiring elements within the bible itself but here we have a very interesting introduction and it's the introduction of the god shamash This is not just law as given by Hammurabi to the people. I am your king, you must obey me. No, this is a law that is provided by Shamash, who is the judge above. In other words, the god of justice, the solar deity Shamash, who rules on high, gives these laws to mankind. Now, does this sound similar to other themes that we encounter in religion? Absolutely. Moses in the Ten Commandments comes to mind. Muhammad in the Qur'an comes to mind. So this kind of idea of the gods or deities or the numinous or this kind of encounter with this other who then gives order and law and meaning to people through some mediator, in this case the king, is a theme that we find in the ancient Near East repeatedly. And we see this kind of thematically repeat itself in a bunch of different religions, especially in the Abrahamic tradition. But we see its origin in Babylon. So this is where we start to see how these threads of ancient history still replicate themselves to some degree to this very day. Right. And then he goes on, It goes, when the god Marduk commanded me to provide just ways for the people of the land in order to attain appropriate behavior, I established truth and justice as the declaration of the land. I enhanced the well-being of the people. Here we have the the introduction of another god, Marduk. Both of these deities kind of build on the previous deities that exist. Now, the Akkadians already had their own deities. We know that Ashur was particularly popular. He was a sort of Assyrian deity that will emerge later, Ashur. Um, We also know that uh, the the Akkadians had their own versions. We had Ea, etc. Marduk and Shamash joined that pantheon. So there's this attempt to kind of build on older pantheons and fuse on newer deities or newer interpretations of deities. And we're going to see this kind of also another theme repeat itself throughout this season as we see, for example, uh, the the Hellenic deities will kind of fuse onto the Egyptian ones and the Egyptian ones will fuse onto the Hellenic and then the Romans will adopt them all together. So we'll see how these religions kind of interact with one another. But how what they interact and by building upon one another, well, yeah, we worship those old gods but here are these new gods as well empires build in legitimacy and we see this in the quotes that i've cited here by hammurabi he is king because the gods ordained him to be so this is important this language is going to be found this is the justification for kingship that we're going to see for literally thousands of years the Romans are going to make a claim to it. The Greeks are going to make a claim to it. In the medieval ages, you're going to find kings that appeal to it. Even today, when anyone who is following American politics can tell you that there is a whole host of religious figures on the right who talk about uh, Donald Trump as ordained by God himself. Now, you may disagree with it. You might might think that the tangerine tyrant and the mango mussolini is crazy but there's no denying there's a sort of religious component there that the language of trump being ordained there is a whole series of evangelical preachers that talk about him as being sent by god right he's ordained to bring law and order into society in other words the ancient forms of kingship that we often think, oh, those superstitious people, they believe that. We modern people don't appeal to that. Well, we, we still do, even in a country like the United States that is ostensibly secular, built on a land of law, we're supposed to be a country of nation of laws, we're supposed to be a country of reason, very much the kind of thematic components of a divinely appointed king and an ordained king who brings law and order are still part of the discourse. Maybe not by the majority, but certainly by a significant minority. Well, that starts in the ancient world. Now, that's not I mean, that's not to say there's a direct line between Hammurabi and what's going on right now. But it is to say how in the ancient world still influences and how the past is built on the present. So what we see here in the case of, of Hammurabi is that he is justifying his legitimacy through Shamash and Marduk. But unlike the Akkadians, who also claim that the gods gave them power, he is, is not just, I am ordained by the gods, but I am ordained by the gods to bring order, to bring justice, to bring improvement to people's lives. This is important because this kind of makes this kingship somewhat contingent. And we will see later rulers, particularly Cyrus the Great when we get to the Persians, who will use this same logic, the idea of, well, the gods ordain me to do good to justify their conquest of Babylonian uh, empires. So they literally use the language of the Babylonians themselves to justify a foreign invasion and uh, conquest. So this is important. This this structure we're going to see is both legitimizing, but also gives the language to future kings and rulers in their own right. And the cosmology that emerges within this kind of Babylonian uh, empire is one in which the empire brings order out of chaos. And this really is seen both cosmic and in the mundane. Shamash and Marduk, Marduk coming f- likely from the Marutuk, uh, are solar deities. They're deities of order, their storm and magic. They replace Ashur, as I mentioned, and they're found most prominently in the epic known as the Inu- Enuma Elish, uh, found in Ashurbanipal's uh, library in Nineveh. We'll talk about Ashurbanipal uh, at a different episode. And the Enuma Elish is really the story of the civil war of the gods. There are these gods that are born out of two primordial forces, Tiamat and Apsu. Tiamat is a great dragon, a sort of dem- a sort of serpentine figure that rules the world, and she and Apsu give birth to all the other deities. And these other deities are known as the Anunnaki, and the Anunnaki also make an appearance in the in Inana's descent into the underworld. She's one of they're one of the judges of the underworld. But the Anunnaki are these kind of chthonic deities that rule over the land. Well, anyways, Tiamat and Apsu have given birth to all these other gods, these Anunnaki, but they're not very happy with the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki are kind of moving about and causing too much noise and so they're pissing off tiamat well they find out that tiamat's getting angry so they do this kind of preemptive strike and ie one of the clever gods of magic you casts a spell that puts apsu to sleep and no one is able to wake apsu this pisses off tiamat even further and thus the war begins and the anunnaki call on all the gods who will step forward and become our champion and help us to fight Tiamat. And out of all the gods, a young deity emerges, Marduk. And he fashions for himself a mace and lightning bolts and a giant net. And he calls upon his powers, the rain flood and the winds. Now here we see the natural world of the Mesopotamians making an appearance in in the mythology of the Babylonians. The rain flood refers to what? The Tigris and the Euphrates. The winds refer to the sort of desert winds that exist in Mesopotamia. He casts his net on Tiamat, he defeats Tiamat, and splits his great mother or you know, creator female in half, and out of her bones he fashions the mountains, and out of her blood he fashions the rivers and the oceans, and so on and so forth. And he creates the world out of Tiamat's body. This story of the kind of primordial waters represented by Tiamat is something that we're going to see repeated in other creation myths, in which there's this notion of a primordial water, of chaos, and out of that chaos, order is fashioned by a warrior deity, the warrior deity here being Marduk, and Marduk then is represented on earth by the king. And just as Marduk fashions order out of chaos, so too does the king fashion order out of chaos. And he does so through the city. The city takes on a sort of magical, mystical, cosmological significance. It is a center of order in a sea of chaos. The deserts, the waters, everything around in Mesopotamia, that's chaos. But the city, that's order. It is ordered through the wall, it is ordered through its planning, it is ordered through its monuments, often with ziggurats, literally as pyramids leading up to heaven, and it is ordered through law. So here we're starting to see that kingship gets wrapped up in notions of justice. God ordains the kings. The kings bring order out of chaos, and they are tied to the law. This reflects itself in the ordinary lives of Mesopotamians and Babylonians. Babylonians believed that goodness, balance, happiness, and joy was all found within the city itself. It was the place of order. It's where you could have children, it's where you could raise a family, it's where you could have, you know, surplus, it's where you can have everything. That destruction came from outside of the city. And this was reflected in the literal natural disasters that they would experience. The flooding of the Tigris and the Euphrates. The dangerous winds that would come in and destroy you. And those natural destructions that existed outside of the order of the city were personified as literal demons. The children of Tiamat. Most famously in the form of Pazuzu and Lamashtu uh pazuzu was the demon of the southwest wind and he was a demon of plagues and destruction a dog-headed or lion-headed demon with four wings who would come in and destroy all that was good but if you knew law and order then you had power over magic and magic was tied to writing so what originally cuneiform the oldest forms of writing emerged as a sort of attempt to count things and then took on a religious significance used in the sort of cosmology and the religion of the ancient sumerian also took on a a functional sense it wasn't just how you worship the gods it is how you you literally employed the powers of the gods and This is the birth of what we would call today magic or, you know, in those days might have just been referred to as religion or an ordinary practice, even perhaps Forms of medicine, and what we find, for example, is that Pazuzu and Lamashtu. Lamashtu was an even deadlier demon who would come in and kill pregnant mothers or uh, babies that were just born. So sudden uh, infant death syndrome was associated with Lamashtu. But if you were an expert in the law, if you were an expert in the, the the rules of order established by Marduk and carried out by the king, then you could write spells that would Tame these demons. And one way to do it was to create a talisman of Pazuzu, the head, this dog headed demon. You would create this talisman that would be created out of clay, and it would have certain herbs in it, and certain special writings and words that you would take literally from the Enuma Elisha, these other kind of sacred writings that would be placed within this Pazuzu, which then would be faced outside, either worn on the body of the child or the mother, or faced on the door. And Pazuzu would then, as the dog headed demon, keep Lamashtu at bay, using one demon to tame another demon. This apotropaic way of working, of kind of warding off evil, is found throughout these kind of talismans that we've located archaeologically in the region but not just that we find all host of spells and many of these spells kind of fall into these categories of either kind of being atropaic meaning they're meant to ward off evil or they're forms of sort of sympathetic magic in which you would do something to something that resembled something else and that likeness would cause a a reaction in other words what is kind of in popular culture referred to as a voodoo doll right so you would create for example a clay tablet and on that clay tablet, you would put the name of your enemy as well as an image of your enemy. And then you would say, may the dogs of Pazuzu take this enemy and tear them to the four winds. And because you wrote Pazuzu's magical name on this tablet, which had the resemblance of your enemy, then because of that resemblance, it was connected to your enemy. And what happened to the tablet would happen to your enemy. That would be a form of a a sympathetic magic. And very common in this time period, but all tied up to this notion that there was two worlds, a world of order and a world of chaos, and the empire was what emerged out of that order. It was the physical embodiment of it. Now what that raises questions for us. What happens when the empire faces natural disaster? What happens when chaos enters into the world of order? well, then that tells us something about the king. If the king is the one who was supposed to ensure order on earth and order is now out of balance and chaos has emerged, then that tells us something about the king's ability to maintain order. The king is no longer ordained by the gods. Maybe the king has done something to upset the gods. So in other words, what the Babylonians did is at one time, they fused this notion of kingship with law, order, and the gods, but simultaneously opened it up to criticism, to an implicit criticism. You could understand the king is ordained by the gods, but that is not an unconditional ordaining of the king. He must maintain, he must do good, he must be righteous, he must be lawful. In other words, we start to see the beginnings of a sort of moralistic understanding of kingship, which is what breaks with the Akkadian tradition. The Akkadian tradition may have appealed to the gods, but there isn't that same sense of, oh, there's a moral world order that must be appealed to. No, that's really the Babylonians. And this sets the stage for nearly all the empires to come. From the uh, Israelite kingdom to the Muslim empires to the Roman empire, all of them have a very similar logic. A notion of good and evil, order and chaos, and an ordained empire that is only ordained conditionally so long as it brings good and balance and the will of the gods on earth. And when things go wrong, then that means that kingship is open to be challenged. This is where I'm going to end the episode today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. This was a kind of deeper dig into the themes that I want to explore. We're going to explore this further next episode as we kind of take apart some of this, as we look at further uh, stories about how these empires intersected with religion, how they were shaped by their environmental circumstances, how that gave birth to the outlook of the empire, justified it, gave it legitimacy, and in turn, how the legitimacy and the desire for empire shaped the religions themselves. If you are enjoying this podcast, please be sure to stop by Stitcher or iTunes store and leave a review. I love reading those reviews from all of you. It gives me life. I'll be sure to give some shout outs as the uh, episodes and seasons continue. I'll read some of them out loud. Anyways, that is all for now. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.